Good morning, church. Today's reading is from Galatians chapter 4, verse 21, to chapter 5, verse 1. And it says, Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one, who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who do not labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just at that, as at that time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit. So also it is now. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son. For the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. The word of God for the people of God. Well, good morning. Hope that y'all are doing well. My name is uh, Marco. I serve as the preaching and teaching pastor here at Storehouse McAllen. It's a joy to be with you this morning. Uh, in the event that you didn't get to hear LC, we're going to find ourselves in Galatians. We're back in Galatians this week. Thanks, Jungle. We're back in Galatians. And we're going to be in Galatians chapter 4, beginning in verse 21, going all the way through chapter 5, verse 1. Um, this morning, we're going to touch a little bit on verse 1 of chapter 5. We're going to revisit that once more next week. So as you open or load your Bible, I just have two things for you. Uh, the first is that uh, the connect cards that are on the chairs where you're at, we'd love to hang out with you. Uh, we'd love to take you out to coffee or lunch or dinner. But in addition to that, we would love the opportunity to pray for you. And so if either of those appeal to you, fill out a connect card, drop it in the connect desk, which is in the back, and one of us will get back to you uh, very, very promptly. Secondly, if you don't have a Bible, we preach through uh, the Bible. We love God's Word. We want to hook you up with God's Word. So if you do not have a Bible, please take one with you, also in the Connect Desk, also in the chairs before you. Take a Bible. Uh, that's our gift to you. Or if you know someone that should have the Word of God in their hands, hook them up. We love giving Bibles away. We have a lot of Scripture to look at because of the context, so I would love to just dig right into our time this morning. Uh, I hope that you are cool with that. And so I want to begin by, by letting you know, for the last several months, we have had something called Teaching Lab going on uh, here at Storehouse McAllen. Uh, Teaching Lab is a monthly workshop for a few of our leaders who serve in some sort of teaching capacity in our church. And one of the first lessons that we walked through when we gathered this summer was called what I, what I called Walk the Line. And walk the line pertained to uh, the interpretation of Scripture, that every part of Scripture, every part of the Bible has a line of interpretation. Sometimes that line is very thin, sometimes it's very small, and you got to do some digging to get to that line, to get to the interpretation, but nonetheless, you can get there. Sometimes that line is very large and obvious and big, and you can clearly see uh, what the author intends to say. Um, the whole thing about going uh, with the line is, is making sure that we walk that line of interpretation. Because as good Bible teachers, our job is to not go above the line or below the line. Those of you who are in the teaching lab, you might remember that. Our job is not to go above the line or to go below the line. You see, when we go below the line, we run the risk of saying things that aren't actually in the text. And we can run into problems such as presuming God's grace 
or misinterpreting a text by isolating a verse and ignoring the context. When we go above the line, this is where we add to the text. We say more than what the text actually has to say. And likewise, we run into trouble because sometimes we ignore God's grace and we promote legalism. Legalism is taking something that God has spoken in Scripture and adding to it. In order to better understand what I'm talking about when it comes to legalism, I think it's important that we define it because that's what we're going to be talking about this morning. I think it's important that we define it, and legalism has been defined a number of ways over the years, uh, but I think one of the most helpful definitions comes to us from Pastor Sam Storms. He's up in Oklahoma. This is what he has to say regarding legalism. He writes, legalism is the tendency to regard as divine law things that God has neither required nor forbidden in Scripture and the corresponding inclination to look with suspicion on others for their failure or refusal to conform. So legalism is adding to what God's word has said, and I think that quotes on your notes, but it is adding to what God's word has said, right? In addition to that, it is imposing that upon others and then looking down on them for not conforming to the standard that you're holding. In short, legalism destroys godliness because legalism boasts in self-righteousness. It is something that we ought to pay close attention to. Many of you, for instance, come from a legalistic background, and so that might be close to the heart. But none of us, however, are immune to legalism or legalistic tendencies. The question is whether or not we have the humility to address these tendencies and repent of them. In this morning's text, the Apostle Paul addresses the Galatians and the legalism that they're embracing through the false teaching of the Judaizers. These are individuals that came into the church and began to preach a different gospel than what Paul had preached to them. Over the last couple of weeks, as we've looked at Galatians, the Apostle Paul has introduced argued for and has been teaching on justification by faith alone. That is, one is only counted as righteous before God through faith alone in Christ Jesus alone. One of the reasons this message has been such a massive emphasis was because the Galatians were turning away from the true gospel and turning toward legalism. See, the irony in all of this is that they thought by turning toward legalism, they thought by turning toward legalism that this would actually bring them closer to God, making them more holy, making them now acceptable. Have you ever felt this way? Have you ever felt like the Galatians where you desire to be more holy? Perhaps you desire to be more acceptable in the face of God. Perhaps more worthy or more righteous before God. Yet rather than turning to Jesus and who Jesus says you are, you turn towards doing more. I got to do more. I got to do more so that God notices. I got to do more so that God would accept me, so that God would love me, so that God would actually take pleasure in me. Do you do more in order to essentially count up your righteousness? In many ways, that's called legalism. The irony about legalism is that it enslaves people. It enslaves people because it can only promote self-righteousness. That's the only thing legalism can promote. It can only promote self-righteousness. However, when we turn to Christ, there is gospel freedom because of his righteousness. Where if we want to boast in anything, we boast in Jesus and in Jesus crucified. That is what is at the heart of our text this morning. So I want to pray, and then we're going to dig into this, this text, and we're going to talk a little bit about it. So let me pray. 
God, as we come before you, I'm reminded of what you say to us through the Psalms. And the psalmist prays for your word to be sweeter than the taste of honey. And that's our prayer this morning. Our prayer is that we would incline our hearts toward your word. And we ask that you would fill us with more of Jesus through your spirit. God, we also ask that you would reveal Jesus to those who do not know him. And we ask this in his precious name. Amen. All right, here we go. So to be fair, uh, this text, especially as as Elsie read it, or maybe you've looked it over uh, in the past, this text can sound a little confusing. It can be a little intimidating. It could be a little challenging, but we're going to get through this together, okay? We're going to need to slow it down a little bit, and I'll explain why in just a moment. Uh, But before we get there, I want you to know that we're going to unpack this section into three areas to better help us. We're going to consider, first, the weight of legalism, and all this is going to be up on the notes. We're going to consider the weight of legalism, the contrast between legalism and liberty, and then the solution to legalism. And we'll walk through each one of these sections as we move forward. Additionally, I know many of you take notes, right? I want you to do two things. I want you to have your pens ready to go because you're going to get a lot of references. And at the same time, I want you to have one of your other hands ready in Genesis because we're going to have to refer back to Genesis to better understand what Paul is getting at. Lastly, and this is all prep work. This is how we study the Bible, right? Anyway, lastly, in this section, Paul is speaking directly to the Galatians. And in turn, the Spirit of God is speaking to us. He's not being broad, but speaking directly. So let's pray that God would use this text to reveal our hearts. So let us begin with the first section, the weight of legalism. This is in verse 21, and I'm going to reread all of these verses so that we work through this slowly. Paul opens by saying, tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? See, Paul's concern with the Galatians since the start of this epistle has been their turning away from the grace of Christ and turning toward a different gospel. We see this in the opening chapter, I believe it's verse 6, where he says, you are turning away from the grace of God to a different message, a different gospel. So that's been his whole thing throughout our time in Galatians. In chapter 4, he's begun to become a little bit more practical in his speech toward the Galatians. At the start of chapter 4, which Nathaniel preached on a few weeks ago, Paul reminds them that they are sons of God because of Jesus' work for them. And then the following week, Pastor Jeff Neal from Harlingen preached through you as he walked through the Galatians' temptation to want to value performance over God's grace. Well, now Paul, who is a great uh, person at debate, challenges their desires. He challenges their theology by opening up with the statement, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? The word law refers not only to the Mosaic law, but specifically the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That's what he's referring to here. Paul is essentially asking the Galatians, since you claim to be under the law, since you love the law, do you know the purpose of the law? That's Paul's argument right now in this opening section of Galatians. He's saying if you want to be under the law, you want to live under the law, you want to live according to the law, you're all about the law, do you know the purpose of the law? In part, as we've walked through Galatians, we've looked at, at the very least, two purposes of the law. The first is that the law not only teaches us how to live, but the law exposes our hearts. It reveals our idols. In essence, we could say it this way, that the law reveals our depravity. That when it comes to living up to these, for instance, moral standards, we can't do it. We constantly fall short. We're always tripping, stumbling, and then making excuses to justify our behavior. So the law exposes our hearts. Secondly, the law reveals our need for a savior. 
Because in order for there to be life, one had to fulfill the law, and that is Jesus who entered into human history to live a righteous life in our behalf, to die a death in our behalf for our sin in our place. That was the whole purpose of the law. So that's what Paul is getting at with them. Because the Galatians are thinking that being under the law is what makes them holy. It's what makes them righteous. It's what makes them uh, acceptable. But Paul challenges their theology, essentially saying, I mean, let's look at that verse one more time, essentially saying this, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? What's so uh, kind of subtle about that is that he's pointing out their idol. Paul is saying the law has become your idol. Jesus is actually not at the center of your theology. Jesus is not at the center of your, of your doctrine. He is not at the center of your devotion. Now, we've, we've talked a lot about idols in the past, but let us consider, quote, good idols for a moment. Because there's nothing necessarily wrong with the law, but the Galatians idolize it, saying this is what makes me acceptable. This is what makes me holy. This is what ultimately is going to get me in right relationship with God. This is what's going to justify me. You and I have the propensity to do the same thing, even with good things. Consider devotionals. How many of you love devotionals? Man, you pick a new one up every month, you learn about a new one every three months, you start one every 1st of January, right? This is it. This is going to be the year that I actually finish this devotion, right? Are devotions bad? No, they're a wonderful tool. They are a wonderful tool that helps us to understand Scripture a little bit better or to think about our circumstances in a way that should point us to God. There are some good things about devotionals. The problem is that many Christians, and this may be you, the problem is that many Christians see them as the Word of God, that, oh man, because I read a devotional, Jesus is at the center of my life. That's not the way it works. Maybe your thing isn't devotionals. Maybe it's sermons. I've gotten to talk to many of you, right? Like, oh, I was listening to Johnny Pipes. I was listening to Johnny Mac. I was listening to so-and-so, so-and-so. Man, sermons are a wonderful thing. At the end of the day, when it comes to the, the Sunday gathering, at the heart of the Sunday gathering, is the preached word. But sometimes Christians aren't listening to sermons so that they would be pointed back to Scripture. Sometimes people are listening to sermons so that they would live according to that person's preaching. What about Christian TV or, or, or radio, right? How many of you listen to 96.9, right? Some of you are like, yeah, I don't, I don't like it. But some of you may, may even have like Christian playlists on Spotify, right? And I, I've, I've talked to several, they're like, well, tell me, tell me what it is you're reading. Man, I, I worship anywhere. I listen to Spotify when I'm at work and I just listen to all of these music. Give me my Bethel. Like I hear all of these different kinds of things, right? And essentially what you're saying is, hey, I'm gonna sit under the teaching of this rather than point me back to Jesus, point me back to his word, challenge this and see where I'm at. No, my entire relationship with God is centered around this Spotify playlist. What about books? Books are incredible resources, right? We talk about some really cool dead guys who wrote some really cool things, and some of you write, read them. You're like, yeah, I'm all about them. I love this. This is great. But here's the thing. At the heart of your theology, Jesus is absent. And all of these things are Christianly. All of them are Christian. All of them are godly. All of them have some sense of spirituality to them. That's what Paul's getting at with them. He's like, hey, I'm not knocking the law, but do you really know the purpose of the law? Do you know what this is intended to do? What it does, what it exposes, who it's meant to point us to? He's challenging their theology because Jesus isn't at the heart of their theology. So the question for you and I is, is Jesus really at the center of our theology? Is Jesus really at the center of what we believe? 
Or do we just think he is because we're in this Christian cultural bubble? And notice that Paul uses the word desire. So there's this willingness from them. There's something that pulls them toward this. And so when Paul says, you who desire to be under the law, he's saying, hey, this desire that you have to be under the law, what it has produced is legalism. And the irony of this legalism is that it has produced ungodliness. That's the irony. They think they're, they're drawing closer to God when in reality they're turning to a different gospel. This one Bible scholar, his name is Herman Babnick. He's dead. Anyway, here's what he says. The law is known from nature. The gospel only from special revelation. The law demands perfect righteousness, but the gospel grants it. The law leads people to eternal life by works, and the gospel produces good works from the riches of the eternal life granted in faith. The law presently condemns people, and the gospel acquits them. The law can be a great irony. It's wonderful because it is a part of the word of God, but it could also be a great irony in the sense that while it teaches us how to live, it reveals that we can't actually uphold it, that we regularly fall short. But the good news is that Jesus walked perfectly in righteousness and that in Jesus there is liberty. In Jesus, there is freedom from captivity. In Jesus, we are now able to walk in righteousness, only it is a righteousness not of our own, but his. The weight of the law is so heavy. The weight of the law is so heavy. The burden of legalism is so much. You are simply not strong enough to carry it. the weight of the law ought to reveal our hearts and expose our idols. But the reality of the law is to reveal our need for Jesus. Let's look at the next section. Now this is the contrast between legalism and liberty. This is where all of our references are going to come out. And so in order to to emphasize or to to make his case further, uh, what Paul is going to do is he's going to use an illustration. um, He's going to tell us about an illustration using Sarah and Hagar. And in this section, Paul uses this illustration in order to demonstrate, and we're going to talk about Sarah and Hagar in a minute, but Paul uses this illustration in order to demonstrate a contrast. In verses 22 to 27, and parts of of the last part of our text, he's going to essentially give us a contrast between grace and law, freedom and slavery, the flesh and the spirit, legalism and liberty. Okay, that's what he's going to do. And so here we go. Beginning in verse 22, here's what Paul says. For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman, one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. All right, that's, that's a lot, okay? Here we go. First thing I want you to notice is how Paul opens it up. For it is written. Remember, the Galatians are tempted to want to live and fall under the law. So Paul is going to, essentially Paul is saying, okay, cool, let's go to Scripture, Let's actually go to the Old Testament. Let's look at what God has to say concerning this. That's why he begins to quote and reference Scripture. That's number one, right? That's a, that's a wonderful appeal. He goes to what God has said, right? The second thing that we notice, or that I want you to notice, is that as Paul does this, this is for you and me, as Paul does this, <clears throat> he's assuming that the Galatians have a good understanding and knowledge of the Old Testament. Likewise, uh, I'm assuming you have a wonderful understanding of the Old Testament. If you don't, 
we're going to have to provide in about five minutes, I'm going to provide you with 30 years of context. Easy. Clear as mud. We can do this. All right. Here we go. <laughs> All right. So here we go. Verse 22, for it is written, Abraham had two sons. First thing you need to know, this is all under the, the, the contrast, but right now we're just looking at, at context. The first thing is, Abraham had two sons, <laughs> right? That's, what does the text say? The text says Abraham had two sons, okay? Isaac and Ishmael. We're going to talk about them in a little bit. He goes on to say, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. So we're looking at Abraham's two sons, we're going to look at the status of their two mothers. So one was a servant. That is Hagar. She's an Egyptian servant to Sarah and Abraham. Sarah is Abraham's wife. Tracking? All right. Continues. One by a slave woman, one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born according to to the promise. So we've looked at it. We're going to look at Abraham's two sons. We looked at the status of the two mothers. Now we're looking at the circumstances of the two mothers. Is that up on the screen? Yeah. So the circumstances of the two mo uh, mothers, the flesh, the promise, and the problem. We'll look at that in a little bit. Now, when it comes to this, you might be like, okay, who's Isaac? Who's Ishmael? Why does this matter? Why would Paul pull this out? Right? In verses 22 and 23, Paul is going to present a historical, or Paul is presenting a historical event. In verse 24, he's going to use an allegory with this historical event. We'll talk about that in a little bit. Let me give you context as to what is going on, all right? This is where you flip back to Genesis and you have your pens ready to go. I'm giving you a bird's eye view. We're not going to look at this in depth due to time. First thing is Genesis 11 and 12, that's chapters 11 and 12. In Genesis 11 and 12, we see that Abraham is 75 years old. God promises him descendants, right? That he will have a multitude of descendants. Uh, at this time, his wife, Sarah, is barren. She's unable to have kiddos, right? And, uh, and, and God promises them a son. God promises them a son, and Sarah laughs. That's Genesis 11 through 12. That's the Cliff Notes version. Right? That's, that's just, some of you don't even know what that is. All right? Here we go. Genesis 11 through 12. All right? So that's kind of the, the, the overview. Genesis 16, verses 1 through 3. At this time, Abraham is 85 years old. And let me just say, in Genesis 11 and 12, this is also where God enters into a covenant with Abraham. That's that. Genesis 16. Abraham is 85 years old. The promised son is still not born. So about 10 years have passed. This promised son is still not here. Sarah and Abraham become a little impatient. And so Sarah has the idea for Abraham to marry her servant, Hagar, and have a kid with Hagar. That's the idea. God hasn't delivered I think, uh, I think we should do something to kind of kickstart this momentum, to kind of kickstart this promise. You, I don't, I'm not saying this is where it came from, but you could almost kind of hear the expression, God helps those who help themselves, which is not in the Bible, in case you've ever <laughs> heard that, right? So essentially, like Sarah and, and Abraham were like, all right, hey, we're gonna, we're gonna kickstart this momentum. Now, this was legal, what they were about to do, but this was not the will of God. So that's in Genesis 16. A little bit further down in Genesis 16, 4 through 16, Abraham is 86 years old. Hagar is now pregnant. Sarah becomes jelly. So she kicks her out. Kicks her out. And what happens? God intervenes and he tells Hagar that he's going to take care of her. He's going to take care of his son. And he sends her back. Right? And it's around this time that Hagar gives birth to Ishmael, all right? Now, the text says that one of the sons was born according to the flesh. That's Ishmael. In other words, that he was born naturally, that Abraham and Hagar did married grown-up stuff, and, and, and then Ishmael is born. He was conceived naturally. There was no intervening from God. There was no divine intervention. That is what Paul means when he says one was boarding, born according to the flesh. Okay? 
Genesis 17 through 18, two chapters. Abraham is now 99 years old, right? Speaking. God speaks to him to remind him of the promised son. So God has not forgotten his promise to Abraham. Even though Ishmael is born, he's still uh, reminding him of his promise. We fast forward all the way to Genesis 21, 1 through 7. Abraham is now 100 years old. He's 100 years old. And the promised son is born. And what's his name? Isaac. There you go. He's listening, right? So you get how this and one was born according to the promise. Who was the one born according to the promise? Isaac. What does Isaac mean? Laughter. Who laughed 30 plus years ago? Sarah. <laughs> anyway. At this time, right? At the time that Isaac is born, Ishmael is about 14 years old. So you got to think a little bit about Ishmael here. Like, how does he feel about this? How's he going to respond? What's he going to do? What's, what's that life going to look like, right? Up until now, it's just been Abraham and Ishmael. It's his, uh, you know, uh, it's his son. Abraham loves Ishmael. Ishmael loves his dad. So what's going on? Genesis 21, 8 through 14. Abraham is now 103 years old. Ishmael mocks Isaac. And problems are caused in the home. And sadly, Hagar and Ishmael end up having to leave. So in that third section, the flesh, that's Isaac. He was born according to the flesh. The promise, that's, uh, excuse me, that's Ishmael. The promise is Isaac. He was born according to the promise. The problem, that there's strife between the two. There's strife between the one of the promise and the one of the flesh. Okay? Now, all of that context. You guys got it, totally. I know you memorized all of this, right? So <clears throat> all of that leads us into verse 24, right? Because check it one more time. Verse 22, for it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the slave woman, one by the free woman, but the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born according to, through the promise. All Paul did right there in those two verses is just put down a historical event. That's it. But again, He's assuming that you knew all about Genesis 11 through 21 because you guys have memorized that, right? So uh, that's why we had to look at all of that context. So that's 30 years of context in about five minutes. Now, verse 24, he says, Now, this may be interpreted allegorically. An allegory is different than a parable, okay? Some of you know parables. A parable is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning, and it has one point. Right? A parable has one point. An allegory is a story, whether used with images or one of historical accuracy, like Sarah and Hagar. An allegory is a story that can have multiple meanings. And in this case, Paul takes a historical event, what we just looked at in 22 to 23, he takes a historical event and he's going to use it as an allegory. Tracking? All right, because you're taking notes. All right, here we go. <clears throat> so that's what Paul does. And the thing about allegories is that they're used throughout all the scripture. They're not like something necessarily unique or special. Read Psalm 23. A lot of imagery is used in Psalm 23. That is an allegory. Blah, blah, blah. Here we go. <clears throat> I want you to notice what Paul says at the opening of verse 24. It's not just that this may be interpreted allegor allegorically, but it is how he says it. This may be interpreted allegorically. In other words, Paul is saying, I'm going to take this historical event and I'm going to use it as an allegory. He does not deny its accuracy. You see, there are some teachers out there, there are some preachers out there that will tell you that all of Scripture is an allegory. All of this is really just philosophical for you to kind of think through how to live. What Paul is saying here is, I am not going to dismiss, diminish, or uh, uh, not validate the historical accuracy of this event. I'm just going to use this as an allegory. As I'm going to give you some symbolism behind it. So here we go. Right? Verse 24. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women, Sarah and Hagar, these women are two covenants. 
one of the old, one of the new. Here we go. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem. All right, we're going to pause right there. So Paul says these two women represent two different covenants, right? Hagar represents Mount Sinai, right, which is in Arabia, or they think is in Arabia. Now, what happened at Mount Sinai? This is where God gave his law to Moses and ultimately to his people, right? Paul is taking them back and symbolically saying, Mount Sinai, where God gave his law, you got to remember, this is what he's telling them, you got to remember, this place was far away from the promised land. This place was desolate. It was barren. It was dry. There is no spiritual vitality in this place. And in turn, all those who are under the law are also dry. They lack spiritual fruit. They lack spiritual renewal. All those who are under the law and man-made religion are just being regulated by their spirituality. What happens at Mount Sinai, actually, let's keep going. He goes on to say, she corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. One of the things that we saw throughout the Old Testament, and we're going to come bring it back to present day, but one of the things that we saw throughout the Old Testament was the people of God attempting to keep the law, saying that they were keeping the law, but their hearts were distant from God. That was the problem at Mount Sinai. That is the problem in there. That yeah, they receive the law, they have the law, they're trying to live according to the law, but their hearts are far from God distant from God, dry, desolate, barren. There is no fruit of the Spirit taking place. And so Paul says, anyone who is under the law is that person. They bear no fruit. There is no spiritual renewal. There is no spiritual vitality. They may say with their lips, that they hold to the word of God, that they embrace the law of God, but their hearts are far, far from him. And so he gives a contrast. Or better yet, let me, let me keep going. That's what we see in the Old Testament. Fast forward to the, to the time of Jesus. Who did he have the most issue with? Pharisees. What were the Pharisees trying to do? Uphold the law. Now, fast forward to the Galatians. Who are the Galatians having the most issue with? Judaizers. What are the Judaizers saying? Hey, you got to live according to the law. If you want to be holy and acceptable, you got to live according to this law. Fast forward it to our day, to the present time, right? What's one of the most dangerous things in the church? False prophets, legalism. Legalism is harsh. Legalistic churches cut you no slack. There is no grace when it comes to legalistic churches. So you can see how even from this, uh, this allegory of Mount Sinai coming all the way to our present day, it's one of the things that we're still fighting. It's one of the things that we're still coming up against. But here's the contrast. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children, but the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. The Jerusalem that is above and free represents Sarah, represents heaven. And what's in heaven? God's presence, where his grace abounds. In this uh, new Jerusalem, this is where uh, those who belong to God walk in freedom and walk by the Spirit and depend on Jesus where they do not impose a fake religious standard because the righteousness in which they walk in is one that is not their own. 
And so Paul appeals to the authority of Scripture in verse 27 by saying, for it is written, now he goes back to Isaiah, or he moves forward to Isaiah 54. Rejoice, O barren one, who does not bear. So he's pointing back to Sarah. Rejoice, O barren one, who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. So he's pointing back to Sarah, the one who was barren, the one who had no hope, and will this promise really come to fruition? He points out a husband, hey, even though you may have a husband who is more than capable, more than able, what I want you to do more than anything is I want you to rejoice because God is going to do the impossible. Just as God brought forth Isaac to Abraham and Sarah, God will bring forth from your spiritual life. He's referencing the birth of the church. In legalism, there, there is no fruit. There's only harshness, coldness, and the absence of the absence of grace. In liberty, there is transformation. There is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the bearing of fruit of the Spirit. In liberty, there is freedom in Christ that we recognize that there are no good Christians, only transformed ones, only humble ones, only repentant ones. Paul uses this little phrase at the end of verse 26, she is our mother. Paul is ultimately saying either you are of Hagar or you are of Sarah. Either you are enslaved to legalism where there is no spiritual life, where there is death, there is no spiritual vitality, there is no fruit. If you are enslaved to legalism, then legalism assumes that you have no self-control, that you have to be treated like a child with a list of do's and don'ts. That's what legalism will teach or you belong to God because of what Jesus has done for you. That you were born from above, free in Christ, free to pursue godliness through the power of the Holy Scripture, or, uh, through the power of the Holy Spirit and the teaching of Scripture, where there is actually life in your bones because your heart has been regenerated, vitality in your life because you are bearing fruit because of the Spirit of God who resides in in you. You are either of Hagar or of Sarah. You cannot be both. Legalism kills godliness. And in the next section, Paul gives us the solution to legalism. Because that's the question. Through this allegory, based on this historical event, how does how do we kill legalism then? What is the solution to legalism? In verses 28 through 5-1, Paul now applies this allegory to the Galatians and in turn to us. Let's go to verse 28. Now you brothers, that's the church, like Isaac, are children of promise. Paul reminds them that they, the Galatians, the Gentiles, that they are children of the promise God made to Abraham back in Genesis 12. That he would have many descendants through faith in Christ. Church, you are a part of that promise. That you have become a child of God through faith in Christ Jesus. That's the solution. The solution to legalism is that you are a child of God through faith in Jesus. That you are born again of the Spirit. That if you are a child of God through faith, then the Spirit resides in you and you are able to bear fruit. You're able to walk in step with the Spirit. You are able to repent. It is a grace to repent and then keep going. Fast forward briefly to chapter 5, verse 1. Why would you submit yourself to slavery once more? For freedom Christ has set us free. 
Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Why would you go back when you are now free in Christ? Additionally, Paul goes on to say in verse 29, but just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh, Ishmael, persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, Isaac, so also it is now. Paul is getting at this. Ishmael persecuted Isaac. The Galatians were not persecuted until they came to faith in Christ. The Christian will be persecuted in the church with legalism. So what do we do? What do we do? Paul answers it. What does the scripture say? So he appeals again to scripture. Cast out the slave woman. He's still speaking allegorically. Cast out the slave woman and her son. For the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So what is it that we do when we're persecuted? Particularly in the context of legalism, what do we do as the church? We get legalism out. We get rid of it. Now if that's you, first step is repentance. And so I invite you to repent. Last week, we looked at 1 Thessalonians and the responsibility of the church to admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, and to help the weak. That applies to those who would subscribe to legalism. Legalism destroys the church. We'll talk about that in a minute. But we get, we get rid of legalism and we pursue godliness. See, because the Holy Spirit works in us, sanctifying us, he also enables us to pursue godliness so that we would die to ourselves and live on to Jesus. Even though we will stumble, we do not give up on, the, on this pursuit because we have God's grace upon us and because we have God's promise in us. Pastor Joe Thorne says it this way. Godliness is not behavior. Godliness is the result of the gospel taking root in our hearts, producing the fruit of Godward love and obedience through an attitude of joy and gratitude. True godliness in the life of a sinner saint is an imperfect experience, but an experience of grace nonetheless. Paul says something similar to Timothy in 1 Timothy and in 2 Timothy. In one point he says, but as for you, O man of God, flee these things, pursue righteousness, pursue godliness, faith, love, steadfast, gentleness. In 2 Timothy he says something similar. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Children of the promise, pursue godliness in order to boast in the righteousness of Christ, not their own. So as we close this section up, as I mentioned earlier, legalism can be a great irony. Legalism enslaves, whereas grace liberates. Legalism breeds ungodliness where grace prompts godliness. Legalism destroys the church, whereas grace builds the church. Legalism bears false witness, whereas grace boasts in the beauty and splendor of Jesus. Church, you cannot have both. You cannot have both. So as we close, Christian, do you live according to the law or according to grace? If you live under the law, then as harsh, as legalistic, and as unfruitful as your walk may be, I'm sure you're just as spiritually exhausted. 
And it brings the question, well, then what is my need? Your need is God's grace. And in a time like this, I invite you to repent. Man, because there you recognize your weakness. You recognize your need for Jesus. And where you are, Jesus meets you. So I invite you to repent and look to Jesus, to depend on Jesus, to exalt Jesus. If you're like the Galatians who need that Bible study lesson because you think you know it all, then you may be legalistic. You may be self-righteous. And so I invite you to repent. And if you don't know Jesus, I've always said, man, I'm glad that you're here. And I really, really am. I really am. And you do not walk according to his grace. And just as much as those who are spiritually exhausted, here's the question for you. What do you do with your guilt? Let that sink for a little bit. The question for you is, what do you do with your guilt? How can there be hope if your guilt is not dealt with? The answer is Jesus who takes away your guilt bringing it upon himself on the cross and invites you to repent and turn to him in faith. Church, legalism boasts in the self-righteousness of the proud. Gospel liberty boasts in the righteousness of Christ given to sinners through faith. Let's pray. God, in your presence, we confess our sinfulness, our shortcomings, and our offenses. All of these are against you, Lord. God, in your presence, we cast our burdens that our bones have grown so weary of. You alone know how often and how easily we wander from your ways, forgetting your grace and in forgetting your love for us in Jesus. God, there are those who are spiritually exhausted, struggling to embrace the hope that you provide for them in Christ. And so, Lord, would you comfort them this morning by the same grace that you have saved them with? Would you sanctify us? Would you comfort us? And by your Spirit, may you lead us to Jesus. Lord, forgive us of our sin. We ask that you would pour your grace out onto us this morning so that we may walk in the righteousness that is not only pleasing to you, but a righteousness that is not of our own. May the words of our mouth and the meditation of our heart be pleasing to you this morning. Amen.